0: Using your cell phone while driving Littering Illegally parking Not wearing a seatbelt Driving through a red light Not cleaning up after one's dog stuff Illegal streaming Are some of the most top common laws people break every single day today Are you guilty of any of these? The expression, rules are meant to be broken, is credited to the five-star Army General Douglas MacArthur, circa 1950s, who was ironically removed from command and forced into retirement due to insubordination, not following the rules. But is this phrase, if you think about it, all that ironic? Or does it actually make complete sense? Rules are meant to be broken. It's a way of saying rules are not perfect and that rules do not make perfect people and that following rules may not actually leave one with the results they wanted in the first place. Well that about rightly summarizes the point of our passage today that the law was never meant to make us perfect but that it had an entirely different purpose altogether and that's the main question of the passage isn't it? Why then the law? We're continuing our study through the epistle to the Galatians in our series There is One Gospel. And from last Sunday's passage in Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 14, Paul begins the second main section of the letter which will run us through chapter 4 verse 11 where he defends the gospel of grace. As we've been learning in the previous chapters of the epistle in these churches in the region of Galatia that Paul had planted during his first missionary journey, Judaizers or those who claim to be Christians who are Jews by birth came to these young Gentile Christians and were teaching them a gospel that was contrary to the one that was preached, contrary to the one they had received. That in order to be truly of God, that in order to be truly a part of God's church, they must follow the cultural customs of circumcision and other laws required under the Old Covenant. And Paul is astonished that they were so quickly deserting the grace of Christ and were turning to a different gospel. Well, in last week's passage, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, Paul strongly rebukes the Galatian Christians who are in the brink of apostasy, of abandoning the faith in hopes of waking them back up to reality. Paul says, Oh, you foolish Galatians! Oh, you foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? What's gotten into you? What spell are you under? He challenged them with one main question in the form of four rhetorical questions. Have you experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your salvation, in your sanctification, in your suffering, in the supplying of the Holy Spirit, in your witness and evangelism for nothing? Furthermore, Paul says to the Galatian Christians, not only does the Holy Spirit prove God's complete work of justification by faith in you, the scriptures, the Bible itself, evidence its reality. You see, the Judaizers had claimed their special status as the descendants of Abraham. Well, what does Paul do? He flips the script, doesn't he? Abraham himself, Paul shows, was justified by faith. Paul shows them from Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, you and me, most of us, by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, that through Abraham, all nations will be blessed And that it is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham, not those of works, not by circumcision, not by a special lineage, not by anyone's own merit, but through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Amen? And Paul says all this is possible, Paul showed us from last week's passage, because of the substitutionary exchange, by Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us And in verse 14 of chapter 3, the perfect summary of the whole pericope, So that, in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, what great news to know that our salvation, from start to finish, from beginning to end, it all starts and ends with God. Amen? May we, like the Galatians, not be bewitched by false gospels that are contrary to the gospel. May we not be led astray by false gospels that add even an ounce to God's glorious gospel. In our passage this afternoon from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25, Paul further clarifies to the Galatians and to us believers today how justification by faith has been God's plan all along to save and redeem sinners, even the worst of sinners, set apart for him. Paul answers for us two main questions in verse 19. Why then the law? Or in other words, what is the purpose of the law then if we are justified by faith? And in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? How do they work together? What is the relationship? In other words, how do we understand justification by faith alone in view of the law? Or ask it this way, How do we understand the relationship between the old covenant of works with the new covenant of grace? In order to answer these questions, I want to share with you three truths regarding God's covenant. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Point number one, God's covenant is promised from verses 15 through 18. Point number two, God's covenant is progressive from verses 19 through 22. And point number three, God's covenant is fulfilled, verses 23 through 25. God's covenant is promised, progressive, and is fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, I pray this word will remind you afresh that our God is a promise-keeping God, that his word is true and trustworthy, that we as his children find strength and joy and hope in his word. If you are here and you are not a Christian, welcome. We're so glad that you have joined us for service today. We've been praying for you. We pray that the words that you hear this afternoon will cause you to look to Christ who justifies sinners by his life, death, and resurrection. And he invites you today to turn from trusting in yourself and to the things of this world to trusting him. God is entirely good, and he's gracious, and he's faithful to forgive you of your sins, past, present, and future. And more importantly, he is the only one who is able to save you from the wrath of God reserved for sinners. He's the only one who has come to die for sinners like you and me in order that we may have new and eternal life. So without further ado, let's turn to his words. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25, found on page 973 of the Blue Bibles around you. I ask you, please keep your Bibles open and follow along for the entire duration of the message so that you know what I say is from God's word and not from my own. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 15 through 25 says this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I meant, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to those to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. How do we understand justification by faith alone? In view, in relationship to the law, point number one, God's covenant is promised from verses 15 through 18. Having explained why Galatians did not need to be circumcised and observe the law to be saved in verses 1 through 14, Paul now shows in these verses why circumcision is no longer required to belong to the people of God. Because circumcision was a part of the old covenant and not the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ. And so Paul explains because God's covenant made to Abraham was promised, it is received by faith. Just as when someone makes a promise to you, there's nothing you can do, right? But wait for the person to keep his word. Such was the case with God making a promise to Abraham. So look at verse 15. It says this. Take up a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The first observation we can make is Paul's addressing uh, the Galatians here as brothers. Nice refresher, right, from the heavy, harsh tone that these chapters have been carrying. This term brothers is a term of endearment. Again, I reminded you, even though Paul's words may seem harsh, it was coming from a loving, fatherly, spiritual place as, as a mentor to them. Although the Galatians were confused and foolish and bewitched Although Paul himself felt betrayed and perplexed and sorrowful toward them by their almost near apostasy The fact of the matter was that they were still brothers in Christ and they were a spiritual family They were true children of Abraham, heirs of the promise And so to the members of the same faith family, to brothers Paul illustrates it for them very simply, doesn't he? Even in a man-made covenant Once it is ratified, it can't be annulled or added to Because the kind of covenant Paul was describing Was not a legal contract for business transactions But rather a covenant for an inheritance What we might call a last will and testament As such, a will is not a contract It doesn't set the terms that various parties are obligated to fulfill Instead, it simply declares what one party intends to do A last will and testament is a legal arrangement in which one party bestows his or her estate to someone else. It's a grant rather than a bargain, hence it is irrevocable. Once it is signed, sealed, and delivered, it simply cannot be changed. There's no way to set it aside or add to it. It can't be amended or adjusted. It is legally binding as it stands. It is permanent. And the analogy was a good way for Paul to explain the nature of the covenant God made with Abraham. You see in those days legal arrangements were not based on a handshake or a signed piece of paper you see instead they were sealed in blood by a covenant ceremony. You can read more about it, more about God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 verses 9 and 10 and verses 17 through 18 Animals were sacrificed and blood was spilt and God Himself passes between them thus validating His covenant in a legally binding way. And the details of such covenant perhaps even excessively detailed. Why? Because it's that significant. In Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham and that promise as Paul had already shown was not based on Abraham's merits or lifelong obedience or anything other than God's gracious good pleasure. It was God Himself from start to finish. This promise or covenant as Paul calls it here for the first time was unconditional, no ifs and ands and buts about it, no strings attached at all. Abraham simply believed that God would do as he had promised. But then the problem is this, right? Exodus came, Mount Sinai came, and Moses delivered a different covenant, the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. And this covenant had burdensome requirements a code of behavior that made demands and issued threats should covenant stipulations be broken. Well, what did this mean for the covenant God made with Abraham before the covenant of Moses? Paul explains in verses 17 through 18. Look with me there. It says this. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay. This sounds perhaps too good to be true, but Paul's clarification makes sense of it for us. Look at verse 16. You thought I skipped it. Verse 16. Because the promise were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. Listen, here in this verse, we see Paul working his finest exegetical precision in the Old Testament. Paul is exercising good use of biblical theology. You see, God had promised Abraham on various occasions that his blessing would come to Abraham as well as to Abraham's offspring. In Genesis chapter 12, verse seven, in Genesis thirteen, fifteen; and in Genesis 24, seven. Every time the word occurs in the singular offspring not offsprings Of course Paul knew full well that offspring was a collective noun Paul would use it in such a way including later in this very chapter in chapter 3 verse 29 and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise But what Paul is doing in Galatians 3:16 is not so much making an argument based on grammar as he is explaining what the Old Testament verses truly mean. You see, Paul himself believed that the Bible, the Scriptures, were infallible and inerrant and sufficient from beginning to end. That there are no inconsistencies between the two Testaments. And as we learned in Simeon Trust this past week about Christotelic reading of Scripture, especially from the Old Testament, Paul saw Christ as the true offspring. Of Abraham, amen? Christ was the party to the covenant that God had made with Abraham. The covenant was all about Jesus Christ. It looked forward to his coming, amen? Somebody getting excited like I am? This is why Paul claimed just a few verses later in Galatians 3, 8, that the scriptures preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What God promised to Abraham was the good news about Jesus Christ, for in him, in Christ, all the nations would be blessed. As theologian Timothy George says True sons of Abraham are not identified biologically But Christologically True sons of Abraham are not identified biologically But Christologically Hence the covenant promise Which was really for Christ When we belong to Christ The promised blessing and the inheritance Also belongs to us As theologian William Perkins says it this way The right way to obtain any blessing of God Is first to receive the promise of God and in the promise of Christ and Christ being ours in him and from him we receive all things that are necessary to life and godliness. Brothers and sisters Paul is reminding us just as he was reminding the Galatians who are in danger of forgetting and abandoning the gospel altogether, Who are tempted to secure their salvation and sanctification and their righteous standing with God by their own power, by their human achievements, by their man-made standards. Paul says the only reason why we are made recipients of God's promise, the reason why we are forgiven of our sins, the reason why our cursed unrighteousness was placed on him and his righteousness credited to us. Is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone again Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise did you notice how many times the word promise is repeated in just those short verses seven times in this passage I think Paul was trying to make a point not not trying he was making a point To remind the Galatians and you and me today That God is a keeper of his word That God is a keeper of his promises That his word is reliable That his word is sufficient for you and me today That it is good for God's children For us to know it For us to read it For us to study it For us to memorize it Meditate on it Day and night Morning and night To love it Live it Share it Proclaim it Stake everything by it Suffer for it Glory in the power of it. Persevere in it. That is the promise and the word of God. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Deuteronomy 7, verses 8 through 9. Write this verse down so good. Deuteronomy 7, verses 8 through 9. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, the promise he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Is there anyone here today doubting God's promises and the difficult circumstances of your life that you are facing today? Is there anyone here today rejecting God's word as good and trustworthy because you find it too hard, too high, too lofty, too unrealistic, too impractical for you? Ask yourself the first question, are you in Christ? Are you of Christ? Because only in Christ God will keep his promise because in Christ it's not you who has to accomplish your soul's salvation and sanctification and secure it for yourself. All you do, all you can do is to look to Him in faith. All you do, all you can do is to obey Him in faith. Whatever you say, Lord, I will do. Whatever I can't, you have already done. You are my beginning and you are my end. You are my life, you are my death, you are my all in all, hallelujah. Psalm thirty-four ten says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Somebody say amen. Come on, I'm saying amen to myself right there. Amen. (laughs) Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So whatever trial you are facing, job transitions, a difficult season of parenting or marriage, loneliness and singleness, anxiety, depression, self-doubt, sinful or harmful addictions, seek Christ in his word. Rest in Christ's promises today. God deals with us according to his promise and not according to our performance. God deals with us according to his promise and not according to our performance. Trials and tribulations will come and go, brothers and sisters. Joys and sorrows will ebb and flow, friends. But know that God's promise is forever. As Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Point number one. Point number two, how do we understand justification by faith alone in relationship to the law? Point number two, God's covenant is progressive. Now that word can be misunderstood these days, so follow along carefully. Verses 19 through 25 are what the commentators call the crux interpretum for Paul's response to the problems in Galatia. It means the significant exegetical challenge of the passage regarding the Galatian dilemma. Even in my study as I'm listening to different pastors preach this text, pastors John MacArthur and Tim Keller both comment how difficult this section is. But just as difficult as this passage may seem initially, the right understanding of it makes all the difference in the way how we see God thoroughly provides for His people from start to finish. How justification through faith is such an unspeakably profound doctrine and a precious gift to you and me. And that means even despite, listen up carefully, even despite our sin and our rebellion against Him. Look at the first part of verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. If God had promised Abraham a covenant of promise, a covenant of permanence, why then the law? What then of the Mosaic covenant? Why did God give the Israelites the law? How did the law bring about the promise of God made to Abraham. Paul tells us, doesn't he? It was added because of transgressions. Think about that for a second. God gave the law because of sin. As societies write laws because of sin. As cities issues ordinances because of sin. As parents make rules because of sins. As teachers post classroom guidelines because of sin. Employers have company policies because of sin. Think about that, right? If children were always obedient to rules, rules would not be necessary. No need for timeouts and no need for spankings. If students were always honest, there'd be no rules about cheating, no need for detentions and suspensions. If citizens were always upstanding and law abiding, no need for laws, no need for policemen, no need for prisons, Jeff would be out of a job if people were perfectly sinless there be no need for the law of God much less its curses and judgments ironically however as hinted in my introduction the law had another purpose another effect on God's people as it did on Israel the Israelites realized that in their attempt to curb sin the law actually exposed the depth of their sin one theologian says it pointedly one purpose of the law then is not preventative but provocative. The law was supposed to be for our protection, but it revealed the greatest threat was actually within. The law showed ever more so clearly and ever so necessarily the gap between the holiest of God's and the depraved nature of our sin in us and its power to control, its power to confuse and dominate and deceive. As Martin Luther says, the true function and the chief use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, his blindness, his misery, his wickedness, his ignorance, his hate and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. John Calvin says it another way. The law was given in order to make transgressions obvious and clear, and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt to God. Its intention was that the more we know the law, the more we see our sins, the more we see our sins, the more we would confess that we desperately need a savior. This is why we really need to be clear on the purpose of the law, brothers and sisters. It's the reason why Paul is emphasizing this section for us to understand it correctly. Paul could have just said justification is through faith, but he labors, doesn't he? To explain why works is no longer required, why works is undoing Christ's finished work on the cross, nullifying the grace of God. We can't rightly understand justification by faith alone if we don't understand the purpose of the law. Can't truly appreciate justification by faith alone if we don't understand the reason for the law. We have to remember it's God. God gave the law and everything God created has a purpose and it's good. But as we know, even good things can become bad, can't it? When we use them for something that was never intended to be. As such was the case, when Israel used and manipulated the law to their own ends to justify themselves with it for their own self-righteousness, the purpose of the law was to prevent sin. Yet it was being used to propel themselves, propel their statuses. That's what the Judaizers were doing. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the legalists and moralists and religious zealots of today are doing. Perhaps you two are struggling with the purpose of the law today. You always feel guilty and shameful under it. You always feel like you can never measure up. Listen up carefully then. This word is for you. What then is the law? First, the law exposes sinners of their sins. The purpose of the law was to multiply transgressions so that it would be so evident. You know those mirrors that somehow microscopically look at every pore in your skin? That's what the law is. The law itself was not the answer to the sin problem. Furthermore, secondly, Paul tells us that the purpose of the law was to be a temporary placeholder. It was never intended to be in force forever for it is subordinate to what God had promised. Look at the next phrase of verse 19 and verse 20 until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Now if you thought to yourself man what in the world does that verse mean? Okay, listen carefully. Whereas God's promise is permanent the law is temporary until the offspring would come. The first thing about the temporary nature of the law is the fact of its subordinate role. That's what Paul means. Whereas the promise was made by God himself, whereas God himself cut the covenant literally and kept the covenant in his promise to Abraham, the Mosaic covenant was made through intermediaries or through mediators from God to angels to Moses and then finally to the people. Just reference Acts 7:53 and Hebrews 2, verse 2 where angels come in. You could reference those verses about what? Angels, what? There you go, those verses. Okay? Whereas the Mosaic Covenant, the laws came through many, the Abrahamic Covenant came through one God, God Himself. But understand this, being subordinate doesn't mean the law and the promise work against each other. No. The law, as Paul is showing us, had its purpose. I love how one scholar explains the law feeds into the promise It is the on-ramp to the gospel highway. I love that. The law feeds into the promise. It's the on-ramp to the gospel highway. This is what I mean when I say God's covenant is progressive. God unfolds and develops his redemption plan through the plurality of covenants. Each covenant contributes to God's unified grand plan of redemption, and each covenant reaches its fulfillment in Christ in the coming of Christ. We'll talk more about that in point three. This is the idea of progressive covenantalism we, Reformed Baptists, adhere to. Unlike some of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who hold to covenant theologies by covenantal structure, covenant of works and covenant of grace which tends to flatten the Old Testament covenants or in the words of our own Pastor Jeremy, smash the progressive nature of the covenants under one covenant of grace. All to say, all to say, listen, God had a clear, specific purpose for each of the covenants. Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, all culminating to fulfillment in the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection. That's about all the time I'll spend talking about covenantalism, covenants. If you want to learn more about it, talk to any of the elders. But the point is this. That's why Paul says in the first part of verse 21, Is the law then contrary to? the promises of God? Certainly not. You guys with me so far? I'm almost done. Why not? Why doesn't it contradict? Second part of verse 21 answers that question. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law can prove that we are sinners, but it can't make us right with God, right? The law is not life-giving. It's transgression increasing and therefore death producing. One commentator illustrates the law as something like chemotherapy, if you will. When chemotherapy is used to treat cancer, it doesn't give life. Actually, it is an instrument of death. The chemicals that are poured into someone's body destroys the healthy tissues as well as the cancer tissues. And during the course of the treatment, chemotherapy actually makes a patient feel even worse than before. But... It is necessary for the patient's long-term health, isn't it? In much the same way, the law makes us worse, exposes us of all the dirty stuff inside so that Christ, so that Christ can make us better. Makes sense, right? Rules don't make perfect citizens. Rules don't raise godly children. Morality and virtue can't be legislated. Why did we ever think that keeping the laws can produce in us righteousness? It's craziness. It is foolishness. But again, point of the matter. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? When the law is used properly as God intended, it's not opposed to the promise at all. Rather than contradicting the promise, it's actually complementary. The law points to the promise by showing that only faith can justify. The law points to the promise by showing us that only faith Can justify, Therefore leading us to Christ The offspring And when we believe in Christ We receive all the blessing And all the benefits God promised to Abraham That's verse 22 But the scripture imprisoned Everything under sin So that the promise of faith In Jesus Christ Might be given to those Who believe Now just a little bit more What does that mean? The scripture imprisoned Everything under sin When you are confused About what the Bible means What do you do? You let the Bible interpret itself. And you may have found in the margins a cross reference to Romans chapter 11 verse 32 which says in the CSB translation this, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. I wonder if you're offended that when Paul says the scriptures imprisoned sinners that it's actually God God Himself who has imprisoned those who are in disobedience. Which is funny, right? That we would take offense to that, isn't it? That God would throw us in prison because of sin? Because we are lawless? Because we are in rebellion? Because human beings outright rejected God's rule every single day? Because we broke every single one of God's law? Because He is the only righteous judge, is it? Or is it not fair? Why should criminals roam free? Why should murderers and adulterers and idolaters not be judged and punished severely? Scripture says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. But here's the thing that's super interesting. Here's where I said the law is temporary. The law is subordinate. But again, the law is not the end. Christ is the end. Amen? Christ is the end. The second part of verse 22, Paul summarizes it for us again so that, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, which leads us to our final point. How do we understand justification by faith alone in view of the law? Point number three God's covenant is fulfilled. God's covenant is fulfilled. Fulfilled from verses twenty-three through twenty-five. Look at verse twenty-three again. It says this: Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Simply, brothers and sisters, the revelation of Jesus Christ by His life, death, resurrection, and ascension is the culmination, the dramatic climax of salvation history. This is what Colossians chapter one, verses twenty-six and twenty-seven means. The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to His saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Simply it's this, Jesus Christ is the mystery revealed as the offspring fulfilling the covenant of promise made to Abraham. Jesus Christ is the mystery revealed as the better mediator and deliverer, the greater Moses fulfilling the covenant of the law made to Moses. Jesus is the mystery revealed as the true and greater king in whom God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever fulfilling the covenant of David. And Jesus is the mystery revealed in whom will be given the new law and new hearts in whom we will be a people for his own and from the least to the greatest will be forgiven of all our iniquity in whom sins will be remembered no more. Jesus Christ fulfilled the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the reason why you and I, sinners, can stand on our two feet today by the grace of God, in the grace of God. It is the best news you will ever hear. The good news that you are justified, not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, the true and only offspring of God, of Abraham, of David, in whom we have life. Verses 24 and 25 says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian because Christ has come faith has come by his sinless life by his substitute death on the cross and in his bodily resurrection from the grave we are justified by faith not by the works of the law we are saved again by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone the word guardian means to describe a disciplinarian, a servant in the Jewish culture whose purpose was to serve as a child's protector, part-time babysitter, part-time chaperone. And that's what the law was for us, to guard us, to keep us, to mature us, to point us to the one who was to come. Good news for us, brothers and sisters, the one Jesus Christ has come. And he invites us, you and me, to commune with him today to belong to his body, to receive and revel in the promised blessings in him, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, new and eternal life, fellowship with him and his church, present and future certainty, joy in the midst of suffering, sorrows, expiration. We can have it all in Jesus Christ. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I wonder if you know this Jesus, the promised Messiah who invites you to enjoy his unconditional love and peace and joy. Why settle for substitutes? Why settle for substitute gods, which are not true gods at all? Why settle for false gospels, which guarantees nothing at all? Jesus invites you today, repent of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in the things of this world, even you believe that Jesus died and rose again for you and trust him who is your life, who is your hope, who is your all from this day forevermore. Don't leave this place without talking to someone about how you can follow Jesus today and the next day and the next day. We wanna walk with you, we wanna talk with you. The pastors will be available at the back doors at the close of service. Don't leave this place if you don't know Christ without talking to someone about how you can follow them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, family of New Covenant Baptist Church, I love those verses, 24 and 25. Because Christ came, faith has come. Faith has come. Faith has come to you. Believe it. Trust it. And knowing him through faith is to know that he is coming again. It's to rest in assurance that no matter what hardships and troubles may come our way, we will have a final victory in Christ. We will have final vindication in Christ. And on that day, Scripture tells us faith will turn to sight. We will see the fullness of the Father's plan unfold. And what a foretaste we get to experience today to know that Christ has died and resurrected and that we will be like Him when He comes. Remember today and this week, amidst the trials and troubles of this life, God's covenant is promised. So hope in His Word. God's covenant is progressive. He has a purpose for our sufferings. God's covenant is fulfilled in Christ. We have all we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the promise of your word that has persevered over two millennia of your servants trusting in you. Father, the things of this world will fade away but your word has withstood scrutiny and persecutions and censures and bannings and burnings because truth cannot be stopped. The truth is unstoppable. The truth will prevail. Father, may the words of truth encourage and empower and embolden the saints of New Covenant Baptist Church. If there's anyone here who do not know you, who do not know Jesus Christ as the one who has already come. Father, may they look to you, turn to you, trust in you, call on you. For the Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, may they not stand on their own strengths by their own merits because this life will be a huge disappointment. Father, may they stand on Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords who is returning and coming again. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.